chapter number 3, Ephesians chapter 3, and uh, I've got a handful of sermons that I've got available to preach on deputation, and and there's a couple of them that I enjoy preaching more than than others, as the Lord allows me to. one of them because I, I believe it's the message that <clears throat> Santa Barbara needs, and uh, the message they need is the grace of God in truth, uh, what the Bible actually says about God's grace. Um, but um, the other message, I, I think, is uh, part of my motivation uh, of why we want to go to <clears throat> Santa Barbara. And uh, so Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 20 and 21, I'm sure these are both very familiar verses to you, and um, but I want to take a, a fresh look at them tonight and uh, hope that they'll be a blessing to you. Let's go ahead and stand, if you would, out of respect for God's Word. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 20 and 21. I would just ask you to follow along as I read it tonight. The Bible says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask, excuse me, ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to look into your word. And Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us with this passage of scripture. Lord, challenge this great church to just continue to do what you've called them to do. Lord, I I don't know what individuals may need challenging about some of the things we're going to talk about tonight, but Lord, you know. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just use this to uh, at least be an encouragement and a help to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can have a seat. Now, I'm sure uh, most of us are probably familiar with the book of Ephesians, and we know that uh, uh, here Paul is finishing a a prayer, a a wonderful prayer for the Christians there at Ephesus. And as he does, he, he concludes with this, uh, time of praise. He says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church. And, um, <clears throat> and as I read that scripture uh, <clears throat> a while back, it dawned on me um, that, that that really is the problem. And what I mean by that is, if, as we look at America today, we might look at the political scene and say, boy, we've got some problems there. Uh, we might look at uh, maybe some economic policies or, or, or the uh, direction that uh, we're going economically and the uncertainties of it and so on and say, boy, there's some problems there. But the, the real problem is that we don't have churches glorifying God. And as I look at Santa Barbara, Santa Barbara is a place of very liberal politics. Uh, it is a place of, uh, you know, all the things that are wrong with California. Uh, you can find evidence of it in Santa Barbara. Um, but, you know, the real problem is that there's not a church there glorifying God. And, and that's, that's what <clears throat> burdens my heart, is that God deserves glory. He deserves glory in Santa Barbara. And if that's going to happen, there needs to be a church there. And so I I hope that you will pray with us about that. But as we think about this text tonight, uh, just by way of introduction, I want to break down verse 21. 
He says, unto him be glory in the church. So notice, first of all, the purpose, uh, which is our purpose. Uh, it's our purpose as individuals, as human beings, as God's creation is to glorify God. And I think we need to be reminded of that someday, sometimes, uh, that our lives are not about pleasing me uh, or even pleasing our pastor or, or some other uh, good thing. Our, our lives are about pleasing him and glorifying him. Revelation 4 and verse 11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. It's all for him. And so we need to be reminded that it's all about unto him be glory. That's our purpose. But notice, secondly, the place. Uh, notice where this is to take place. It's in the church. And uh, I know I probably don't need to remind this crowd that... Uh, when those first Christians at Ephesus heard this letter read, all right, if you can just imagine, uh, maybe they're gathering at a, a rented schoolroom or meeting in uh, some wealthy church member's uh, courtyard at his house or whatever, and, and uh, the, the believers are all there, and it's Sunday morning, probably 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, whatever time they uh, appointed for church time, and, and uh, the pastor steps to the podium and he says, brethren, we've got something very special for you today. We've got a letter from the Apostle Paul addressed to us, the church at Ephesus. And he began to read. And as he came to chapter 3, and he said, Unto him be glory in the church. The people wouldn't have thought of, you know, that hierarchy centered in Rome. All right, because that hadn't been invented yet. Uh, nor would they have thought of that universal, invisible gobbledygook that people think of today sometimes when they say the church with a capital C or whatever. Because uh, that hadn't been thought up yet. <clears throat> they would have simply thought of, you know, what the word means. The assembly there that day listening to that letter being read. And so the application to us is quite simple. That God has chosen places like Kazadale Baptist Temple to be the place where he would get glory. That's an important thing to understand. And we'll get back to it in a moment. But So we see the purpose, we see the place, and notice the person, that it's by Jesus Christ. Now, certainly it can be said that the whole Christian life is by Jesus Christ, right? Uh, if it were not for Him, we would not have any opportunity of salvation. And, and really, our salvation, our life can be described as being in Him, right? We see that all throughout the Scriptures. But just like Jesus told Philip in John 14, 9, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father, right? Because Jesus was the revelation of God. If we want to know who God is and what he's like, all we have to do is look at Jesus. And of course, he's not standing here before us this morning in a physical bodily form. And so the way we look at him is through the scriptures that, that describe him, that tell us a story. The, uh, the, the word of God, the Bible, is, is the perfect revelation of who Jesus is. But here's what I want you to see, that just like Jesus is the way to the Father, also he's the only way that we can glorify the Father. And the church that glorifies Christ is the church that glorifies the Father. I uh, <clears throat> read that uh, Leonardo da Vinci, when he finished his famous painting of the, of the Last Supper, he asked somebody to come and, and take a look at it, give their opinion before he unveiled it publicly. And, and his friend looked at it and he said, boy, that is a beautiful painting. Uh, 
Uh, he said, man, the most beautiful part of it, though, is that cup. And he pointed to the, the certain cup on the table. And, and uh, Da Vinci immediately, without even thinking about it, grabbed his paintbrush and blotted out the cup. And he said this. He said, I don't want anything in my painting to draw away attention from the face of my Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, that, that essentially was Paul's ministry philosophy. It, it was never about Paul, right? It, it was never about uh, some, some movement or organization that, that he would head up and people would look to him. It was all about Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes in, in Baptist history, we can find places where, where, it's gotten, where we've gotten the wrong focus, haven't we? Where certain churches were all about not Jesus Christ, but making their pastor famous. Or certain other churches were looking to some man of God because he had a, a big crowd. We want to look up to him and make him famous. But no, we must lift up Jesus Christ if we're going to glorify God. So we see in the person, and lastly notice the, the perpetuity here. He says, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. World without end, amen. And uh, I love that simple definition. What does all mean? Well, all is all that all can mean, right? I mean, all ages. Uh, and I find that encouraging because, um, you know, there's some history books that talk about the dark ages, like there was no gospel preaching and no churches uh, that were not Catholic during that time period. And, and I know your pastor has taught on Baptist history. You know better than that. And, and, uh, and that's encouraging to us because we, we do live in times that are, in many ways, very dark. Uh, we live in a day in, in, in this nation that was founded on Christian principles that uh, is really departing from all of our Christian foundations. And, and it can be very discouraging and, and almost scary to look towards the future. But understand... <clears throat> If there were churches standing for Jesus and glorifying Jesus and lifting up Jesus all throughout the dark ages, then we can be faithful to God today. God's grace is sufficient for churches today. And not only has there always been churches standing for Christ, but until Jesus comes back, there always will be. And God forbid that Kazadale Baptist Temple should ever close its doors or go by the wayside. But even if it did, <clears throat> we have the confidence that there will still be churches. Yes. That's one of the exciting things about the, uh, the seven church plants that, uh, that you've been involved in or are involved in. Man, that's, that's awesome. Because you're ensuring that what God said here will continue to take place. Now, <clears throat> so this church at Ephesus... We have quite a bit of information about it in the New Testament. You can read about how it was founded in Acts 18. You can, uh, you know, Paul delivered a very memorable message in Acts 20 where he mentioned that that church was purchased with the blood of God. Uh, it was also the church that Paul mentioned in 1 Timothy 3.15 that was the pillar and ground of the truth in Ephesus. And, uh, of course, it's the church addressed in Revelation chapter 2 when they had left their first love. And so we know a lot about this church. But understand that it was that congregation of believers in Ephesus that was a place where God would be glorified. And likewise, it is true that every independent Baptist church from that time till the time Jesus comes back, that is our role in this world. That we are the place where God is to get glory. So the New Testament church 
is the, is the place for the glorification of God. And if that is true, and it is, then it's also the place for the sanctification of the saint. I remember we as individuals, our, our purpose, because we are God's special creation, created in the very image of God. It is our purpose to glorify God. And so if we're going to do that, obviously, first of all, we need to be saved. We need to have that, <clears throat> that new relationship with God and that transformation that goes along with it. But then it also means that we need to be a part of a local church. You see, God has not chosen the radio or TV ministries or internet websites or publication companies to, to sanctify His saints and glorify His name. No, He has chosen local churches just like this one. And a Christian will never be scripturally and practically sanctified without being involved in a church and cannot glorify God without being an active member in a scriptural church. Really, we can say that for a Christian to refuse to be baptized or refuse to be a member of a, of a church really is to rebel against God. Now, all that being said, I believe that our text implies then that the remainder of the book Paul will lay out for us ways that the church at Ephesus, and by extension then, this church here, can glorify God. In other words, the church is the place where this is to take place, but what's it going to look like? And I think Paul fleshes that out in the, come, in the following chapters. And so tonight I want to take a brief survey of how we at Kazadale Baptist Temple and our sending church, West Coast Baptist Church in Oceanside and our church that we trust will be established in Santa Barbara, how these churches can glorify God in our day. First of all, notice, God is glorified by a doctrinally solid church. Now, it's uh, <clears throat> something that is probably well emphasized here, the importance of doctrine. But, uh, but you might ask, uh, Pastor Chad, where'd you, where'd you get that? Well, let's look down at verse number 11. And uh, we'll, we'll get back to the intervening verses in a little bit. But uh, in verse number 11, he says that he gave, and then he begins to list some people, some offices, uh, officers that God gives to the church. So he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And of course, we know from Ephesians 2.20 that the apostles and prophets were a foundational office. And, of course, they're still the foundation of churches today because we have their writings. We have the writings of the apostles and prophets. We call it the scriptures. We call it the Bible. That is the foundation of our, of our church. But, uh, but then he lists some offices that are still active today. Uh, evangelists and pastors and teachers. And I don't want to get into all the discussion of, you know, is a pastor and teacher one office? Is What's an evangelist and all that kind of stuff? Uh, I just want to say this, that God has given you a pastor. And we need to understand that our pastor is God's gift to us. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, we live in a day where we can get Bible teaching anywhere. I mean, you can turn to TBN on Sunday morning and somebody might teach a little bit of Bible in between their gobbledygook, right? 
you can you can search online you can find youtube you can even find some good churches online that you can listen to but they aren't your pastor god gave you a pastor and hebrews 13 we're not going to turn there for sake of time but um but god makes it very clear that there's certain responsibilities involved that your pastor is going to be held accountable for how he pastored you and you're going to be held accountable for how you responded to his leadership and so we need to understand that god gives us a pastor and there's responsibilities involved in that now why does god give us a pastor well that we find here in our text in verse number 13 i'm sorry verse 12 i'm skipping ahead of myself verse 12 for the perfecting of the saints all right so uh, if anybody's perfect here tonight, then you don't need a pastor anymore, right? Uh, no, but seriously, uh, the idea of perfecting the saints is the idea of, of maturing the believers, that we are growing to be what God wants us to be, right? And so we need our pastor if that's going to happen. We need to listen to his preaching. We need to follow his leadership. We need to pray for him. We need to get involved in what the church is doing. Uh, All of that is vitally important. But understand, your pastor is given to you to help you to come to spiritual maturity. Now, if we look at verse 13, we'll see, we'll begin to see what that spiritual maturity looks like. He says, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man all right so we're we're going to have a unified faith all right so we'll have unity in the church we'll we'll have uh, uh we'll, we'll know jesus the son of god better then he says that we'll become uh, he says unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of christ so we're 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 becoming more and more like jesus he's the measuring stick and that's how we know we haven't arrived yet because none of us are quite as perfect as him yet but continuing on, verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children. Well, what's the children look like? Tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Did you see it there? He says it's the, it's the spiritual children. It's the ones that haven't grown. They're being driven by the false teachers that are being drawn aside by the Stephen Andersons and all the other false teachers that you can come on to find on the Internet. It's, it's the spiritually immature that are drawn aside by that. And so I believe with all my heart that one of the <clears throat> things that will glorify God in a church is if that church is doctrinally solid. Because it's one of the marks of spiritual maturity that we be grounded in the truths of the Word of God. Just think about Paul's style, his writing style, if you will. Uh, normally, his writing style is he starts with doctrine, right? He piles up the doctrine, and then he switches gears to the practical, just like he does here in Ephesians. Uh, as we get to the end of chapter 3, we kind of get to a hinge, and we, and we turn from the primarily doctrinal to primarily practical. And, and, and that's often the way he, the way he deals with uh, issues in the church, and, and, and there's a reason for that, because doctrine is foundational. And so tonight... Do you know what you believe? Could you show somebody from the Word of God why you believe it? 
I mean, if somebody uh, were to come up to you and say, well, hey, I, I go to the Nazarene church. What's the difference between what we believe and what you believe? Now, you might have to ask them a few questions and find out what they believe, but could you show them why you believe you can't lose your salvation? Or maybe uh, you're working with somebody on a job and they're a Catholic and say, man, why are you always going to church? Why, what's the difference between your church and my church anyway? Could you show them the, the gospel of how to be saved? Or maybe somebody comes to you and say, man, why do you, <clears throat> why is your wife dressed the way she does? Why don't you talk about the TV programs everybody else is watching? Why, why aren't you listening to the, the music everybody else wants to listen to? Why are you so different? Well, my pastor told me to. Hopefully you got a better answer than that. <laughs> Hopefully you know you can give a Bible reason for why we believe and do what we do. This is the reason that good preaching will include doctrine. It's also the reason, as you maybe noticed in our video, I emphasize the idea of discipleship because I, I, I'm expecting we're, we're probably going to be reaching people that don't really know much about the Bible and probably have a lot of misconceptions about uh, Christianity. And I, I want to make sure they get grounded in the truth of God's word because God is glorified by a doctrinally solid church. Notice, secondly, God is glorified by a determinedly sowing church. You say, where in the world did you get that? Well, let's go back to verse number 12. He says that God gives us a pastor for the perfecting the saints. Well, why do the saints need to be perfected? For the work of the ministry. I hope that you understand tonight that churches don't hire pastors to do the ministry. All right, but God gives the church a pastor to prepare the church to do the ministry. You see, the ministry can involve a lot of things, but it really, the central nug, nugget of it is, is that the work of the ministry is preaching the gospel and discipling converts. That's what it boils down to. Now, of course, we, we, we want to have the church clean so we don't scare away our guests, and, and we want to have, uh, you know, we need nursery workers, and it's helpful to teach the kids on their level. And so there's lots of different jobs for people to do to help us accomplish that. And they're all important. I hope you understand that. But understand that that's what our focus must be. Preaching the gospel, discipling converts. And all of us have a role to play in that. Look at verse 15. We continue to see a description of what spiritual maturity is going to look like. He says, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in him in all things which is the head, even Christ. Uh, I, I love that phrase of growing up into our head, right? I think of a, a little toddler with a big old head, right? And we say, man, he needs to grow into his head. And, and that's what we as churches need to do. We need to grow into our head. We've got a perfect head. His name is Jesus. But we as a body have to grow to, into that head. And, and he says that we're going to do that as we're speaking the truth, as we're sharing the truth. You see, scripture ministry is not just what your pastor does when he stands behind this this podium but but all of us as believers need to minister to each other the word of god all of us as believers need to take the word of god to the lost and tell them how to be saved you've probably heard this story before but on the fourth of june 1768 john waller lewis craig james childs and and some others were seized by the sheriff and hailed before three magistrates in Virginia who stood in the meeting house yard and who bound them in the penalty of a thousand pounds to appear in court two days later. At court, they were arraigned 
as uh, preachers often were in those days, as disturbers of the peace. On their trial, they were vehemently accused by a certain lawyer who said, and I quote, May it please your worships. These men are great disturbers of the peace. They cannot meet a, meet a man upon the road, but they must ram a text of Scripture down his throat. And uh, I always smile when I read that. But, you know, I think a lot of Christians ought to be convicted by that. Because we don't, we don't really have the zeal that our Baptist forefathers had oftentimes. Now, this church at Ephesus was known for its evangelistic efforts. In Acts 19.10, while Paul was there establishing this church, it says that he was there by the space of two years so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, some of that was, I'm sure, because Ephesus was an economic center and people were coming and going and hearing the gospel and going to their hometowns and things like that. But I, I believe that that church got excited about winning people to Christ. And the message went far and wide, not just, not just by the hands and mouth of the Apostle Paul, but by the believers of that church. You know, we get to the book of Revelation and we've got seven churches of Asia. Well, we aren't really sure where the other six came from. We know where the church of Ephesus came from. I, I dare say the other six were probably started by that church. We certainly know that Paul emphasized in Acts 20 his uh, ministry method of getting the gospel to every creature. He said, I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. Well, what, did he, what did he show house to house? Well, verse 21, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. He believed in house to house soul winning. And I don't know how else we're going to get the gospel to every creature. Now, <clears throat> I say we need a determinedly sowing church because we need to be sowing the gospel, but understand we need to be determined to stick at it. It's uh, <clears throat> sometimes uh, an easy thing for an excited young Christian to say, oh, uh, we need to go soul winning, knock doors, tell people about Jesus. All right, I'll get involved in that. And, uh, but we don't always see fruit from it, do we? Not immediately. Uh, sometimes it can get discouraging. Sometimes you pour your heart out trying to share the gospel with somebody and, and they just throw up all their, their excuses and, and turn their back and, and you walk away almost wanting to cry, you know, and, and it can be very discouraging. And so we've got to determine. This is our responsibility and we've got to keep sowing. You see, I think uh, in just about every Baptist church in America, uh, there's people that would say amen to the prayer that God would grow their church, you know, and uh, that souls would be saved. And, uh, but, you know, that's an easy and really somewhat nebulous prayer. God help our church to grow. Whereas we ought to pray, Lord, use me. Use me to share the gospel with somebody. Use me to be an encouragement to a brother or sister in Christ. Use me to help somebody to grow. Use me to maybe uh, be a witness or a testimony to a visitor that came out. And, and Lord, use me to reach somebody and see this church grow. 
And when every member is thinking that way, God will be getting glory. Thirdly, God is glorified by a devotedly spiritual church. Just quickly, you know, Ephesians is the book where we're warned to grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, right? It's the book where we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit, where we're exhorted to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. It's a put on spiritual armor while praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Paul himself has already prayed twice for this church, for their spiritual enlightenment and spiritual experience. And so obviously God wants his church to be very spiritually minded. A devotedly spiritual church. A church that has really given themselves to spiritual things. Given themselves to God. And so tonight I want to ask you as an individual. Because the church is just made up of a bunch of individuals, right? It's a body made up of many body parts. And so if our church is going to be a spiritual church, you've got to be a spiritual member. And so are you spiritual tonight? I know it's easy to just, you know, button our suit coat and stick our King James Bible under our armpit and say, yeah, I'm spiritual, you know. Uh, But let's be honest with ourselves tonight. How is your prayer life? How is your mind? Do you mind spiritual things or do you mind the things of the flesh? Romans 8 says it's to be carnally minded is, is death. Are we endeavoring to fill our hearts and minds and guide our decisions based on what the Word of God says? Are we really spiritual? Be honest with Him tonight. Fourthly, God is glorified by a decidedly soft-hearted church. In verse number 15, we saw that we were to be speaking the truth, but notice that next prepositional phrase, in love. And uh, it is easy for somebody to get a hold of some scriptural principle and, and uh, become a very pious Pharisee and start beating up other people over the head with it. <clears throat> but he says, no, we need to speak the truth in love. We need to be motivated by love. We need to use some tact, some grace, graciousness in uh, speaking to each other. But let's continue on. There's much more we want to look at here. Verse number 16, he says, From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now that is a verse with a lot of words in it. Right? Um, But let's stop and think about what he's saying. All right, so we've got the whole body. What's the body? The local church, right? 1 Corinthians 12. So the whole body, the local church, fitly joined together. All right, so what's that? Well, that's, that's us as members. God has connected us, made us part of the body. And, and compacted, excuse me, by that which every joint supplieth. So every member is joined, and through that, that connection, we supply something to the body. <clears throat> According to the effectual working in the measure of every part. So there's an effectual working. All right, God is working in the lives of every member, and we supply something to the body. And the result is that it maketh increase of the body and to the edifying of itself in love. <clears throat> so understand, 
every part of the body is vitally important. That means if you're here tonight and you feel like, man, I'm just not that important. I'm a Christian. I'm not very smart. I'm not very talented. I'm not, you know, <clears throat> haven't gotten all the victories over things I know I need victory over. And, and I'm not important. It doesn't matter if I make it on, on Sunday night or whatever. No, understand, God has put you in this body. You're an important part of this body. By the way, that means for the rest of us, as we look at maybe a weaker brother that maybe gets on our nerves or something like that, and we might every once in a while feel like saying, you know, I wish they would just go to the church down the street. Understand how wicked that is. Because God has set them in the body. God has joined them to the body, and they have something to supply. They are vitally important to the life of the body. You know, I've seen this <clears throat> happen more than once. Um, you know, there will be somebody in a, in a church that is very zealous for God, and God sometimes uses them to reach people. And <clears throat> But somewhere along the line, during the discipleship process, their bitterness will come out, or their anger problem will show itself, or just their mean-spiritedness will show itself. And that young plant, that young disciple will get trampled on and offended. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 18, 6. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Now that's strong language. And I dare say that there are many Christians in independent Baptist churches today that Jesus had them in his mind when he said it. You see, in the first part of this chapter, we see just how important scriptural unity is. In verse 1, he said, I therefore the prison of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. And a lot of discussion about what that vocation might be. I, I see nothing wrong with connecting it back to verse 21, that our vocation is to glorify God. I think that's at least part of it. And so walking worthy of that vocation, he says, is going to involve walking in verse 2 with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. I've met a lot of Christians that are not low and meek in their attitude and dealing with others are not long-suffering. And, you know, sometimes I've been that way, too. But in verse 3, he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he lays out uh, all the different uh, foundations, if you will, of our unity. You know, we've got one, we're part of one body. We have one spirit and one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and so on. And, and so we have all these reasons for unity. Really, we have unity given to us as believers. But we're commanded to endeavor to keep that unity. We need to work at protecting and preserving that unity. This is a very important responsibility of every church member, is to work at protecting the unity. Just think about the book of Acts and what that church at Jerusalem was able to accomplish because they were of one mind and one heart and one accord. God was able to move through them in a mighty way. 
And there seems to be a natural law that God has built in the creation, this, this idea of, of, of like a synergy or a multiplication of power, that, that, uh, that when, when more than one is working together, it multiplies what you can do. read about an example of that in the physical world where uh, in Canada there was a, a horse pull competition and the winning horse was able to pull 9,000 pounds. Uh, the second place horse could pull 8,000 pounds. And so the owners kind of put their heads together and said, boy, I wonder what they could do together. And uh, I don't know if they placed bets or not, but I imagine many would have bet 17,000 pounds, right? Uh, but they started working those horses and they were able to pull 30,000 pounds when they worked together. Almost twice what they could do separately. We find this even in the scriptures in Leviticus 26 and verse 7 and 8. God promises Israel that you shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword and five of you shall chase an hundred and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Now, if you break that down like a geeky math teacher like me, all right, five chasing a hundred, that reduces down to a ratio of one to 20. Okay? But a hundred putting 10,000 to flight is a ratio of one to 100. You see, the Israelites could multiply the number of enemies that they could take on by adding to their army. And I'll say this, that a church can multiply what they can do if they're all pulling together. If they are truly unified. Now, skip down to the end of chapter 4. And of course, God gives us different instructions in the New Testament that if we put them into practice, we will be endeavoring to keep the the unity of the Spirit. I I think of uh, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, if you come with your gift to the altar, and you remember that uh, there's a brother that hath fought against you, then leave your gift there before the altar, go and make things right with your brother, and then offer your gift. In other words, our ministry or our offering is not really going to be accepted of God if we know that we've hurt somebody and we're unwilling to make it right. So there's a responsibility on our shoulders to go fix it. But then in Matthew 18, we find that if I'm the one that's offended, and maybe that other person doesn't even realize they've offended me, then I've got a responsibility to go to them and say, hey, brother, you know, what you did wasn't right. And he says, uh, if he repents, then you've gained your brother. And oftentimes that's as far as it'll go. But if necessary, then you get somebody else from the church involved. And if necessary, you bring it before the congregation. But how often do we actually obey what it says? Instead, we get offended and we say, fine, go to the church down the street. I I don't find that in here. And so there's certain things we need to do, our responsibilities. But notice verse number 30. He gets back to some very similar language uh, to, to what we saw in the first part of the chapter. He says, again, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. And, and I think there's a reason that he goes right into let all bitterness and so on. Because these are things that grieve the Holy Spirit. These are things that, that cause churches to be unfruitful. So he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. 
Now, bitterness, that's a hard one sometimes, isn't it? Because sometimes we do get hurt. And sometimes we can justify why I, I, <clears throat> they hurt me. I deserve to be angry at them. I deserve to be bitter at them. Yeah, that might be true from a human perspective. And I may not know how badly they've hurt you. But I do know this. You're not going to fix them by getting bitter. You're just going to ruin yourself. And that hurt will begin to color the way you look at life. And eventually many will be defiled. Those close to you will be impacted by it. Bitterness is a dangerous thing. And so God says you better put it away. Same thing with wrath and anger and clamor, where our anger turns into yelling at each other and evil speaking. And, of course, that covers a multitude of sins, doesn't it? He said, get rid of those things. Get rid of malice, any desire to hurt one of your brothers or sisters in Christ. And instead, look at verse 32. And I know we, we make the kids memorize this verse because they need it, right? We don't want brothers and sisters fighting, so be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. But let me remind you, this is, this is not chapter 6, right? Addressed to the children. This is God <clears throat> looking down the corridors of time and saying, boy, I need to help these churches because some of those Baptist folk are just dumb as a box of rocks. <laughs> All right, let's just be honest. And I need to remind them to be nice to each other. Now, it sounds silly. And sometimes we act pretty silly. But this is addressed to us as believers because we need to hear it. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Why don't we learn to give each other the benefit of the doubt? Why don't we learn to, instead of giving everybody that side eye or trying to figure out what are they really up to, uh, why, don't we, why don't we look at people in a positive light and say, boy, they're such a blessing. It's so wonderful that they're a part of our church. Why don't we look at them that way? Why don't we be tenderhearted? You know, why do we see somebody having a bad day and we think we've got to make it worse, right? Why don't we be tenderhearted and say, brother, what, what's the matter? Is there something I can pray about? Because God is glorified by a decidedly, not just, you know, we put friendliest church in town on the side, but, but truly a decidedly soft-hearted church. Now, one more, and I, I know I'm probably taxing your time at this point, but let me just give you this last point quickly. In verse number 17, <clears throat> Paul begins to reason with them uh, to not live like lost Gentiles. Right? He says, uh, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that ye uh, henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. And he goes on to reason with them why. He says, You know, the, 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 the lost Gentiles, they're blind, they're, you know, they, they, uh, you know, they don't understand, and so on. Uh, but he says that we, verse 20, but ye have not so learned Christ. So we've learned from Christ if we're truly saved. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus that she put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt, according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. 
Now that's part of what we demonstrate when we get baptized, that we're putting the old life off and we're living that new life of, of Christ. And, and hopefully there's definitely been a time, maybe, maybe it's been since the time you were saved, you were, you were always completely surrendered to God, but sometimes you know, we get saved and we're excited about the Lord and, and then we um, lose our focus a little bit and we've got to surrender ourselves. And we can look at that as that time where maybe we put off concerning the old man and we and we are, were renewed in the spirit of our mind, verse 23, and put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. But you know, Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't say you need to, at some point, surrender yourself to God. Right? He doesn't just stop there. But then he says, <clears throat> Wherefore, verse 25, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. And he goes on to give more examples. Be angry and sin not. Let him that stole steal no more. And he goes on and on with things that, individual things that were a part of our lives before we were saved, that we need to individually take that thing, take it off like a dirty garment, and put on something new. Here's what I want you to see. My last point is this, that God is glorified by a dedicatedly serious church. And, of course, this can mean a lot of things. But what I want you to see is that we as believers need to get past just coming to church and saying, all right, uh, you know, pastor preaches on our favorite pet sin and invitation time comes. We say, fine, I'll get rid of it now since he preached on it. But instead, be serious about every morning saying, God, teach me so I can become more like Jesus. You see, there's a big difference between the two. There's a big difference between somebody trying to live the carnal Christian life and just having to straighten out a little bit every once in a while because he gets, you know, hammered by a sermon. <clears throat> there's a difference between that and somebody who's really serious about following God. And God is glorified when we're serious about it. When we say, Lord, I want to be your student, and I want you to teach me. And you can use our pastor. That's part of the reason you gave him to me. I understand that, but... I've got the Holy Spirit, and I've got the Bible. Lord, teach me. Teach me what I need to put off. Teach me what I need to put on. Teach me what I need to do in my Christian life. And God will be glorified by a church that has that kind of attitude. <clears throat> you know, I think of a, a Ephesians 5 and verse 10. Uh, was a verse.